This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 20. And as you make your way to the 20th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around a heated conversation that took place between a man named Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It was after hearing about the pain and the suffering of their friend Job, that's when these guys, they traveled to the land of Uz from their respective homes, and and all this with the goal of comforting and encouraging Job, even with corrective counsel. And once they arrived, they sat in silence for seven days as they mourned with their friend. And after that period of mourning was over, each man then began to take their turn as they tried to convince Job that he was being punished for unrepentant sin. Now, I'll remind you, it was actually back in the beginning of this book. That's when we learned that Job was actually an upright man who feared God and shunned evil. And it's for this reason that Job was quick to defend himself against the false accusations of his friends. And while this should have given Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar a reason to reconsider their perspective on Job, they instead decided to double down on their allegations, and they did this by engaging in a second round of false accusations against Job. As a matter of fact, it's here in our text tonight, we find Zophar now wrapping up this second round of attacks. And as we make our way through the chapter that's before us tonight, we'll begin to see how Zophar was implicitly accusing Job of sin by warning him about the outcome of those who are walking according to their own wickedness. Now, Zophar didn't come right out and explicitly accuse Job of being wicked, but he was clearly assuming that Job was walking on this path of wickedness. And and now, before we get into uh, uh, our consideration of the content of of this chapter, you know, it's, it's important for us to first realize that the accusations of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were all based on the belief that Job must have been living in sin. And they believed that Job was living in sin because why else would God be punishing him in this way? And and while they were convinced by their own line of reasoning, it's important to understand that their line of reasoning was actually based on a few fallacious arguments that didn't stop them from concluding that their accusations against Job uh, were wrong. They, they, they weren't even willing to consider that they may have been wrong. They weren't even willing to consider that maybe this wasn't God's punishment. Maybe Job was suffering for other reasons. Um, no, they weren't willing to consider any of that. They were convinced that they were correct uh, about Job's uh, wickedness and his need to repent. And it's sad that it's not uncommon for Christians to follow in the footsteps of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You know, rather than believing the best about others here within our fellowship of faith, you know, we're quick to embrace the hypocritical arguments of Job's friends. We're quick to embrace the, the, the comments made by those who are critical of others. And, and, you know, if we're not careful, then we start falsely accusing others of living in sin without any real evidence at all. Somebody says one thing, we kind of, you know, pick it up in earshot and, and we start to think ill of the person that they're talking about. Next thing you know, we're engaging in the same accusations against others without any real evidence. And knowing how easy it is for us to make this mistake, 
I want to consider the problems that come along with Zophar's perspective, which is found here in the 20th chapter of Job. If you would look with me here at Job chapter 20, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here we learn that Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Zophar, he's confessing uh, to the fact that his response is entirely emotional. He's admitting that his response is entirely emotional. As a matter of fact, notice again there in verse 2, here he declares this. He says, therefore, my anxious thoughts make me answer. What's making him answer? His anxious thoughts. His anxious thoughts were making him answer because why? The turmoil that is within him. Zophar's response that's found here throughout the rest of this chapter, well, it was motivated by anxiety. It was motivated by anxious thoughts and agitated feelings. More simply put, his response wasn't spiritual at all. He's not a man here being led by the Spirit. No, instead, this was entirely emotional. And in order to understand the reason for this reaction, I want to take a closer look there at verse 3. There again he declares, I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Here in this verse we find Zophar, he's referring to the rebuke that Job had just presented at the end of his last response. He was actually responding to Bildad back in Job chapter 19. And if you back up and look there at Job 19, Beginning at verse 28, there Job says to Bildad, If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's warning his friends about the judgment which will come upon those who are guilty of persecuting the innocent with false accusations. And in response to this rebuke, Zophar quickly clutched his pearls, so to speak. You know, he clutched his pearls as he attempted to to dismiss the reproach that Job had just presented. Now, he's been lodging false accusations against Job this whole time, but the minute Job says, hey, you're going to be the one that's going to be judged, he's like, oh, be still my my anxious heart. How, How dare you? As we consider the flow of the conversation, it seems to me here that Zophar was so disturbed by Job's rebuke that he immediately interrupts Job in order to deal with the distress of being challenged. And oftentimes this is is the sort of response that we see in, in, in those who are quick to accuse but then can't be accused. And there are many people who are quick to judge, but the minute you turn the tables and put the judgment back on them, it's just like, how dare you? And their feelings are hurt. In light of Zophar's response, we should take a moment to realize that Zophar seems to be too proud to even consider this correction. And it's sad that the same is true for many believers in the church today, you know, believers who simply can't cope with being corrected. And while there are many who are quick to give corrections, like Zophar, It's oftentimes the same people who can't receive correction from others. And if this sounds like something you struggle with, then I encourage you to to consider the corrective word that we find in Proverbs chapter 10. 
It's verse 17 where King Solomon declares this. He says, he who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. If you accept instruction, then you end up staying on course. Those who want to stay on course with the Christian faith, well, they need to be ready to receive righteous instructions from others. And yet at the same time, we must also be ready to receive a rebuke from those who want to provide us with biblical correction. We should at least consider it. We should at least listen and hear it out. The fact is that the Bible presents us with many truths that are designed to provide us with the correction that we need. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's verses 16 and 17 where he declares, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What is it profitable for? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Christian, listen, the word of God was given for the purpose of correction and instruction in righteousness. Therefore, we do well to become those believers who are correctable. We do well to become those believers who are ready to receive a rebuke. And listen, this might include the correction that comes from the person that we're even correcting. You know, you might go to somebody to correct them, and then like Job, they turn around and say, oh, no, 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 you're the one that needs correction here. Are you ready to receive that correction? That in your correcting you were wrong? That might be the case, right? Zophar set out to correct Job. All he had was false accusations. And with that being the case, he was actually sinning against Job. And so Job responded with a word of correction for Zophar. But rather than receiving the rebuke like he was hoping Job would do, Zophar took offense. He took offense to the correction. And then with a heart that was filled with anxiety, he immediately interrupts Job as he responds to the rebuke. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Zophar's response, which is found here in Job chapter 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4, here Zophar goes on to ask, Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Here in these verses we find Zophar, he's presenting Job with this rhetorical question regarding the outcome of those who choose to walk on the path of wickedness. And just to be clear, you know, Zophar summarized this ancient wisdom by reminding Job that the rejoicing of sinners is short-lived. And the joy of the godless, well, it's a joy that only lasts for a moment. Not only that, but Zophar also assured Job that those who exalt themselves are going to soon be humbled. And, and he basically says this, that they're going to perish like their own poop. Hey, I didn't say it. That's what Zophar said. He says in verse 7, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, listen, those who live for the lust of the flesh will eventually be flushed and forgotten. 
And as we consider everything the Bible says about the end of those who will not repent of their sins, well, there should be no doubt that Zophar was correct when he spoke of the short-lived lives of those who enjoy the momentary pleasures of wickedness. Now, in order to grasp this reality, we should consider what the Scriptures say about the brevity of life here in this world, and it's something that's true for both sinners and saints. And and I want to consider how King David put it here in the 39th Psalm. It's verses 4 and 5. That's where David declares, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, And my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. In other words, our life is like a vapor which is seen one second and then gone the next. If you've ever seen a vapor of smoke, you know it's it's there for a moment. But then it's gone. That being the case, those who live for the lust of the flesh they eventually realized that they wasted their lives engaging in the wicked ways of this world. And at his very best, he was nothing but a vapor. I should also remind you about the statement that Paul made in Hebrews chapter 9. It's verse 27 where he declares, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. In other words, you're not going to come back and try again. Reincarnation is not true. You you don't get to come back as another life form and give it another shot. Nope, it's appointed for men to die. How many times? Once. Just once. Unless you're Lazarus. Lazarus died twice. But for us, it's appointed to die once, and after this, then the judgment. And between that point in time of birth and then the judgment, it's a very short amount of time. Now, if you're younger, you don't really believe me. But, you know, I'm, I'm 54 now, and, and time is, is just starting to fly by. Some of you guys, it must be going like full force, like just, not going to name any names here, but... Guessing you know who you are. Maybe not, I don't know. You have a short time here on the earth, and that becomes more and more true the longer you live. And the reason why is because the amount of time that you have to look back on is much longer than the amount of time that you have to look forward to. You know, people look at me and think that I'm half dead already. You know, and hopefully, hopefully, you know, hopefully we can, we can wrap this up this week. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. But anyway, listen, we have a very short time here on the earth. Even if we live 70, 80, 90 years, it's a very short amount of time on the earth. And then that is going to be followed by judgment. For the believer, we're going to go to the Bema seat of Jesus Christ where we're going to be rewarded. And and listen, it's not going to work out well for the unbeliever, though. Those who are wicked, the unrepentant unbelievers, are going to be judged according to their works. We're going to be judged according to our works, unto rewards. Unbelievers are going to be judged according to their works and then receive a just judgment for every single sin they ever committed as they stand before the great white throne of Jesus Christ. 
And it's in Revelation chapter 21. There the apostle John describes this judgment in this way. He says in verse 8, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, those who will not repent of their wicked ways and trust in Jesus Christ, they're eventually going to be judged according to all their works and then cast into the lake of fire. And it's there where they're going to receive a just judgment. People hear about hell and they think it's an unjust judgment, but listen, based on what? What is your standard for determining what is just and what is not? Our creator is the one who then provides us with a standard for determining what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. And you better believe that his judgment of unbelievers is going to be completely just. And they're going to receive a just judgment for every single sin they ever committed. That being the case, we'd all do well to realize that we have a short amount of time here on the earth and we'd all do well to make sure that we are right with our Creator by faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that we'd all do well to pray the prayer that Moses presented in the 90th Psalm. It's actually verse 12. There he declares, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of of wisdom. Please trust me when I tell you that that our time here on this earth, it's like the spring flowers. You know, the spring flowers spring up in the in the, in the spring, but then they quickly perish under the summer sun. I mean, it's beautiful here in Central Texas for you know about a month, and then the summer sun comes out, and those flowers quickly begin to wither and die. And and our life can be a lot like that. You know, we enjoy the spring of life for a season and then that sun comes out and we start to wither. And knowing how short our life actually is, you know, we would do well to realize that Zophar was right. Zophar was right when he assured Job that the rejoicing of the sinners is short-lived. And the joy of the godless will only last for a moment. When we see the wicked enjoying their life, living in sin, having what some might call a nanny, it's a very short amount of time. And then the judgment. With that, it's important for us to realize that the ancient wisdom that, that Job you know, or that Zophar was presenting to Job, he was correct. He was correct in what he was saying, but at the same time, it's also important to realize that the ancient wisdom that Zophar was sharing wasn't evidence that Job was wicked. Zophar was jumping to the conclusion that Job was wicked, but but this wasn't evidence that Job was wicked. Zophar was convinced that Job was living in sin and still had yet to produce real proof that the suffering of Job was evidence of his wickedness. And with that being the case, I want to continue to consider Zophar's case against Job, which is found here in in Job chapter 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 8, here Zophar continues to describe the end of the wicked by declaring this. He says, He will fly away like a dream and not be found. 
Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Now here in these verses we find Zophar, he's continuing to encourage Job that it's time to repent of the sins that Job wasn't actually committing. And to provide Job with a proper motivation, well, he took this time to describe the way in which the man who's walking in wickedness will quickly disappear from the earth. And as a result, he leaves his children behind in poverty. Now, I'm sure we all realize that the history of the world has literally proven Zophar wrong in many cases. The fact is that there have been many wicked families here in this world who have passed down great measures of generational wealth to children who use the inheritance in evil ways. And whether we're talking about Democrat slave owners in the South or we're talking about German Nazis who amassed great amounts of wealth during World War II, you know, many people have received generational wealth from wicked ancestors. And from this, we can see that Zophar wasn't entirely correct. The wicked don't always leave their kids impoverished. At the same time, though, I do agree with the overarching point that Zophar was making here. You see, it's true that the wickedness of parents end up affecting their uh, uh, kids in many different ways. And just to be clear, you know, I'm not referring to generational curses like the hypercharismatics are afraid of. No, I'm instead referring to the cause and effects of sin. There are cause and effects of unrepentant sin, and that can impact our kids and their kids and so on and so forth. As a matter of fact, as we study the Old Testament scriptures, we find many stories and we learn about the ways that sinful decisions of parents oftentimes affected their children. And in many cases, you know, we see how kids grew up and repeated the same sins that they saw their parents engaging in. And some might say, well, that's a generational curse. Well, I mean, I guess if what we're saying is that we're all under the curse of Adam, sure, I guess. But more so, it's just that, you know, kids see their parents living in sin and they end up following in the footsteps. That being the case, you know, parents should be careful to raise their children according to the truth that's found in the Bible. You see, it's in the Holy Scriptures that we find the wisdom we need, the wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And if parents are are making the Bible less than important, if if parents are are, are placing the Bible as, you know, and, and, you know, church and Bible study and devotional time, if, if parents are placing that on the second, third, fourth, fifth, or the back burner of the stove, and it's not priority, well, then the chances are that's what the kids are going to walk out as well. If you want your kids to make their relationship with Jesus priority, they need to see that in your life. They need to see you walking that out. And you need to help them to grow up learning the scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as for Job, you know, he didn't have access to the Holy Scriptures. 
Remember, Job is one of the first recorded books that we find in the Bible. And yet I should remind you of the way that he helped his kids to maintain a relationship with the Lord. I'll remind you, it was back in Job chapter 1. That's where we learn that Job would send and sanctify his kids, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Job would regularly send for his children in order to sanctify them with the proper sacrifices. And in light of this evidence, we can be certain that Zophar's concerns about Job was completely unfounded. Job was not a wicked man who was leading his kids into poverty. The evidence of Job's life was that he was a very spiritual man, that he loved the Lord, that he was keeping God first in his life, and that he was raising his kids to believe the same things. And yet the truth about Job's spirituality, well, it didn't stop Zophar from presenting his own sanctimonious speech about Job's wickedness. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider his hypocritical perspective, which is found here in Job chapter 20. If you would look with me there at verse 12, here Zophar declares, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. He allows, uh, he, he swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. From the proceeds of his business, he will get no enjoyment. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not build. Now, Here in these verses, we find Zophar, he's warning Job about the way that the wicked will lose everything that they worked so hard to acquire. And while it's true that there are wicked people who enjoy the finer things in life, you know, it's also true that they're eventually going to lose the worldly wealth that they acquired through their extortions and their oppressions. There are wicked people who amass incredible amounts of wealth, and yet at the, at the end of the day, they can't hold on to it. And that's really what Zophar's talking about here, how... The wicked people might, you know, become winners here in this world, but they become losers in the end. I'll remind you that Paul assured Pastor Timothy of this very thing when he said that we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's right, all all of the wealth that we amass while we're here in this world, it stays in this world. And according to Peter, there's coming a day when the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so even if you have the largest tower in in New York City with your name on it, it's going to get burned up in the end. That being the case, we should take a moment to ask, what will the wicked have left on the day when they stand before the Lord? And the answer is nothing but their guilt. That's all they'll have left. Nothing but their guilt. In light of this reality, I encourage you to consider the instructions that Jesus presented in Matthew chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And with that, I could turn this around for a second and just say, where's your heart? Where is your heart? Where does all your time and energy go? In the things of this world, in the things that you want to accomplish here in this world, in the, in, in the wealth that you're, you're attempting to, to create, in the things that you want to purchase, is your heart here in this world? Or is your heart with Jesus in heaven? Rather than wasting the very little time that we have pursuing unrighteous mammon, I encourage you to spend your time serving our Savior so that our, that our heart is actually there in heaven with Jesus. And as we do this, listen, the born-again believer can rejoice in knowing that we're actually storing up treasure in heaven where our wealth is being kept safe by the one who's going to reward us at the time of the resurrection. Sadly, this world is filled with those who are worshiping at the altar of worldly wealth. And as a result, you know, they become lovers of money and, uh, and, and lovers of the things that you can buy with money rather than becoming lovers of God, which is eternally significant. And if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then consider the point that C.S. Lewis made when he declared this. He said, aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Christian, listen, those who are building their kingdom here on this earth, they're going to lose everything. If you're building your kingdom here on earth, if you're building your bank account, if you're building you know, your wealth here on this earth, you're going to lose everything. Conversely, those who submit to our Savior, even to the sacrifice of earthly goals, well, these are the believers who eventually rule and reign with Jesus at the time of his return. And so listen, if you want to work for a little bit of something here in this short lifetime, go for it. I'd rather rule and reign with Jesus forever. I'd rather rule and reign with Jesus when he returns and sets up his kingdom of righteousness. And with that being the case, I encourage every Christian, let's follow in the footsteps of Job by becoming those believers who are ready to make sacrifices. Job sacrificed the wealth of this world when he woke up every day and offered the sacrifices to the Lord, he was sacrificing, literally sacrificing his wealth. Because every cow, every lamb, every goat, every animal that he sacrificed to the Lord, that was money. That was valuable. And yet he woke up every day and offered those sacrifices. And we too have been called to sacrifice so that we can become bondservants of our Savior. Maybe we have to sacrifice some overtime pay. Maybe we have to sacrifice you know, the next promotion because of the decisions we made to plug in more at church. There are many different ways that we can sacrifice here in this world so that we can become the bondservants of our Savior Jesus, and that's what we ought to be doing. And as we do, listen, we'll begin to learn what Paul meant when he declared that godliness with contentment is great gain. Living a godly life while being content with what God provides results in great gain. We do well to learn what that means. At the same time, those of us who are worshiping at the altar of worldly wealth will eventually discover that you know, we can't purchase a ticket into heaven 
And I want to consider how Zophar put it here in Job chapter 20. Look with me there beginning at verse 20. Here Zophar declares this. He says, because he knows no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. When he is about to fill his stomach, God will cast, him on, will cast on him the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. <clears throat> he will flee from the iron weapon. A bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. Now here in these verses we find Zophar, he's continuing to describe the way that wicked people will eventually be punished. And according to Zophar, the self-sufficiency of those who are wicked will eventually result in their own distress. Wow. I've never seen a, a, a better description of modern America. Self-sufficiency of the wicked resulting in distress. Also, the finest foods that these people eat will give way to the furious wrath of God. And, and the power of worldly wealth will give way to fear as they flee from those with iron weapons and bronze bows. When all is said and done, total darkness will claim their treasures. And according to Zophar, an unfanned fire will consume them. Now think about that for a moment. An unfanned fire. It's very interesting. And with that, we must not fail to notice that an unfanned fire must be some sort of you know, supernatural fire. It's not a human fanning the flame of this fire, but it's supernatural and it's designed to punish the wicked so we know it's not the enemy. It seems to suggest here that God's the one fanning this flame. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfanned fire that consumes. That word consume, it speaks of destruction. And, and I want to consider more about this word destruction here in a minute, but... But listen, there, there are many who insist that the doctrine of hell is found nowhere in the Old Testament. They try to say that it's a New Testament creation. And yet this verse, which we find in one of the oldest records that, that's in the Bible, this certainly seems to provide us with some foundations for the biblical doctrine of hell. An unfanned flame that destroys the wicked. In order to further make my case, I want to consider the way that the Apostle John describes the final judgment, which is going to take place before the great white judgment throne of Jesus, is actually found in Revelation chapter 20. It's verses 14 and 15. There John tells us that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Anyone not found in the Lamb's book of life they will be cast into the lake of fire. They will be risen from the grave. They will receive a resurrected body. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire. 
And it's there where every unrepentant person will suffer the second death, which is a state of everlasting destruction. As a matter of fact, this is precisely the point that the Lord Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 10. It's verse 28 where he declares this. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Just to be clear about this, the word destroy there, it doesn't speak of annihilation as many would like it to mean. We're not talking about the annihilation or the cessation of existence. No, instead that word destroy was translated from a Greek word which was used of that which is ruined and rendered useless. This sort of destruction doesn't cause the non-existence of the thing being destroyed. No, it simply re- refers to, the, to, the, to something that's been rendered useless. Therefore, those who are cast into the lake of fire, they continue existing, body and soul. And yet they continue existing in a ruined state that renders them entirely useless. In other words, they'll no longer be used for why they were created. Why are we created? To glorify God and to praise his holy name forevermore. But those who are cast into the lake of fire, they'll no longer be useful to that end. And if you don't think that this is found in the Old Testament, I want to consider how the prophet Daniel describes it. It's in Daniel chapter 12, it's verse 2. That's where the prophet declares, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. In light of these verses, we can see that Zophar was correct when he spoke of the unfanned fire which will consume, or in other words, destroy those who refuse to repent of their wicked ways. And there is coming a day when those who will not repent of their wickedness will receive a just punishment for every single sin. And the reason why is because they rejected the price that Jesus paid for covering those sins. Those are the only two options. Jesus can pay for your sins, or you can pay for your sins. Jesus came to pay for our sins, and was willing to suffer for the sins of every single person so that we could all trust in him and be saved. But the person who says, nope, don't want that, okay, that's your choice. But there are everlasting consequences for that choice because every sin has to be paid for. Every sin has to be punished. Otherwise, God is no longer just. And God can never be unjust, and so therefore, he has to punish every single sin. He sent Jesus to come and and die for our sins so that all sins could be accounted for, so all all sins could could be, you know, the, the punishment for every sin carried out there on the cross so that God remains just. But then he wants to become the justifier of those who trust in Jesus Christ. And the person who says, I don't want to trust in Jesus Christ. I reject what he did on the cross. God says, fine. Then you have to pay for your own sins. And those who choose to pay for their own sins will receive a just punishment for every single sin they ever committed. 
With that, I want to consider how Zophar continues to describe this day of judgment that's here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there at verse 27. There he declares, the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Zophar, he's describing the day of wrath when every iniquity of the wicked will be exposed and then punished according to the righteous judgment of the Lord. And as we consider Zophar's theology here, especially in light of New Testament theology, well, there's no doubt in my mind that Zophar here was receiving intel from the spirit of the living God. And so what, became, what, what started off as an anxious response to the rebuke of Job, it actually ended up becoming this, this very you know, clear picture of the final judgment of those who are wicked. Now this is not to suggest that Zophar's initial accusations were correct. The, the accusations that he made against Job were still wrong. But his assessment of what will happen to those who are wicked, completely correct. And, and right on point. From this we can see that a believer can be theologically accurate regarding end time events and still be completely off base regarding the accusations they're making against others. And that's so important for us to realize because some people can get you know, so theologically minded and, and they've got all their ducks in a row, they've got all their T's crossed and all their I's dotted when it comes to theology and yet they don't know the first thing about interacting with the people of God. They don't know the first thing about having spiritual relationships with others. With that, we have to be careful because we ought to study theology. We ought to know the doctrines of the scriptures, but we should also be mindful of the leading of the Holy Spirit as we interact with one another. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to consider one another with a level of grace and humility as we remember our own shortcomings. I like the way that James put it in James chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, where he declares, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now from this we can see here that it's wrong to judge others with evil accusations. And, and that's the important thing to remember because, you know, there's a lot of people who want to jump on the whole judge not lest you be judged bandwagon. And, and they're taking that totally out of context. We're called to judge with righteous judgment while avoiding judgments that are hypocritical. And here in these verses, James is specifically saying that we are not to judge others with evil motives, or we're not to speak evil of one another, or present false accusations against one another in that sort of judgmental way. In other words, those who falsely accuse others with evil intent are simultaneously breaking the law because they're breaking the ninth commandment, which forbids us from bearing false witness against others. And listen, this is exactly what Zophar had been doing. And, and as a matter of fact, 
all the friends uh, of Job here, they were falsely accusing Job, and in that way, they were judging Job with evil intent as they presented false accusations in a way that was forbidden by the law of God. Now, with all of that, you might be interested to know here that this is actually the last time that we're going to hear from Zophar in this book. He'll be referenced once more, but, but this is actually the last time we actually hear Zophar accusing Job. As a matter of fact, both Eliphaz and Bildad will go on to engage in a third round of false accusations, but Zophar stays out of it. And it seems to me that maybe Zophar was beginning to realize that they were the ones, they were the baddies. You know, that they were the ones guilty and not Job. And if I'm correct about this, then it's possible that Zophar finally realized that Job had been correct when he rebuked him. Maybe through the course of, you know, this, this, uh, this presentation, Maybe Zophar was, you know, towards the end of it, realizing that he's the one who deserved this punishment. I can't say for certain, but regardless of the reason for why Zophar then restrains himself from that third round of accusations, what we can say for certain is this, that those who speak evil of other believers are simultaneously breaking the ninth commandment. If you, you know, speak evil of them, which is to say if you present false accusations against them, then you're engaging in evil. You're the one breaking the ninth commandment. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to realize that those who are guilty of falsely accusing others should remember that we've been called to put away lying. We've been called to stop gossiping. And instead, we've been called to speak the truth with one another. For we are members of one another. To sum that up simply and in closing, let's make sure that we're speaking the truth about one another in a loving way. Let's make sure that we speak the truth in love so that we can continue to become a mature body of believers who are following the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, Jesus is the head of the church. So let's follow the leading of the Lord and let's speak truth about one another so that we can continue to grow and become the mature body of believers that the Lord would have us to become. Let's pray.